Welcome into 49ers Access. My name is Sterling Bennett, and today we're going to react to the San Francisco 49ers 13-0 victory over the New Orleans Saints, including a shaky Jimmy G performance that I do think leans towards more good than bad. The defense once again proving to be the number one unit in the NFL, and we'll even look ahead at to what the win meant for San Francisco in the NFC playoff picture. But first, we have to discuss the injury news that came out of the game following the Saints' victory, or the win over the Saints, excuse me. And that is the news that Elijah Mitchell was likely going to miss a couple weeks. Now, that could be two, that could be four. We don't know the severity of the injury, but he's going to miss a couple weeks due to an MCL sprain. Apparently, it's not as serious as the one he suffered earlier this year against the Chicago Bears in Week 1. But alas, Elijah Mitchell is once again going to be on the shelf for a certain amount of time. Again, unknown currently, but he's at least going to miss next week against the Miami Dolphins and could miss uh, two weeks from now against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So, let's discuss what this running back room is going to look like and who I think should take over or who could take over the carries for Elijah Mitchell. And so, the first option would be Christian McCaffrey. Obviously, he's your number one running back. You traded, what, a second, a third, a fourth, and a fifth round draft pick for him. There's a reason you brought him in. He's going to be your number one, uh, no matter who is in that room alongside him. That being said, apparently Christian McCaffrey also has knee irritation, which again... This was the big hesitation on many people, including myself, where it was like, look, if these guys are healthy, that being McCaffrey and Mitchell, you have one of the most dynamic running back rooms in football, maybe the best outside of the Browns who have Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt, at least from a versatility, pass catching and running between the tackles style of offense. I do think San Francisco and healthy definitely has that with Mitchell and McCaffrey, but now both those guys are seemingly hurt, while CMC is not going to miss time from what we know, he might be limited, he might need some time to, or may take a few practices off, we don't know what knee quote-unquote irritation actually means, that could be maybe a bruise, that can be tendonitis, that could just be wear and tear, or it could mean that something serious is brewing underneath where the tendons and ligaments are, and the last thing you want to do is risk him getting hurt further when you, at least right now, are in prime position to not only make your second half run, but you've won four games in a row. You are the now solidified number three seed in the NFC conference, and also now the number one in the NFC West after Seattle then lost to the Raiders in overtime yesterday. So... You don't want these guys missing time, and you may want to play it safe with Christian McCaffrey, with Mitchell, because you know how important they've been to not just the offense, but also to someone like Jimmy Garoppolo, who's been playing pretty well, albeit we'll get into his performance against the Saints, because it wasn't that great, but it also wasn't that bad. It was definitely a mixed bag from Jimmy G. But going back to the running back room, the question is now, who takes the spot of Elijah Mitchell? And there's a few options here. I think the most obvious one would be Jordan Mason. He has been the primary uh, third running back to be active on Sundays and Mondays and Thursdays on game day. 
because he can also play special teams. Now, he looked pretty well towards the end of that Saints game. The Saints knew that he was going, or or the Niners were going to run the football, and they stacked the box continually late in that game, trying to somehow fend off San Francisco's ability to end the game via one final drive that put the clock to zero. And they couldn't stop Jordan Mason. Jordan Mason had five carries, 25 yards, 18 of his yards came after contact. He, what we've seen in the short, very, very, very short uh, example or, or, or sample size, he looks like someone that if you're going to stack the box, which many defenses do against Jimmy Garoppolo's offense, that he might be the best option to jump in and take Mitchell's spot while he's on the shelf because the one thing I do like about Jordan Mason, and, and I'll say this very bluntly, when I was at training camp for the handful of days that I was, when Mitchell was not practicing, again, due to injury, this, or, or Jordan Mason, looked like the best option behind him. That's ahead of Jeff Olson Jr., that's ahead of Ty Davis Price. He looked like the number two running back, or if Mitchell wasn't practicing, he looked like RB1. He was cutting very well, he was finding space, and he wasn't afraid to make contact. Now, again, it's training camp, you can't tackle, we know this, but even in preseason, Jordan Mason looked like a find. There's a reason they chose him over guys like Jamichael Hasty. There's a reason they picked him over guys like Trey Sermon, who said, look, we'll just cut Trey Sermon instead. And I think that goes into what Jordan Mason can do on the ground. Now, the other factor in this is that Jordan Mason is 5'11", about 233 pounds. He's much bigger. He's not faster, but he's bigger. Uh, and, and his body can take more hits than the likes of Christian McCaffrey and Elijah Mitchell, who are tough in their own right. But the biggest knock on Shanahan has been the ability to keep the running backs healthy. He utilizes them over and over and over again. And while that can come in handy and has shown to be successful in the past, and even this year, he's also had guys like Raheem Mostert and Matt Breida and Tevin Coleman Guys who are smaller, Elijah Mitchell, guys who are smaller in the room that he's being asked to take, you know, 20, 30 hits a game, and you multiply that by 17 games now, uh, some guys just can't do that. Now, I think there should be some concern, not much, but some concern with, with Elijah Mitchell, that you've played two seasons, you were banged up all last year, albeit fought through it, now you've missed the majority of this season, and after one, one and a half games, you're already hurt again. That's concerning. Thankfully, I think Jordan Mason might be the prime candidate and I think will be the most successful if Shanahan does see or does choose him to supplement for Elijah Mitchell. The other two options are Ty Davis Price, who the only reason why he has not been active is because of, well, for the majority of the season, it was Jeff Wilson Jr being RB1, and Mitchell being RB1, then McCaffrey got acquired, then it was McCaffrey and Wilson, but the number three back was never a tight of his price because he's not good on special teams. And so that kind of left him the odd man out of the rotation, and so now with Mitchell on the shelf, and if Mason's taking Mitchell's spot, tight of his price might find his place back on the game day roster, on, on, on the or off the inactive list, you could say. But the part of me thinks that 
while Ty Davis Price isn't another third round miss, I do think in his very, very, very small uh, playtime this year, he has shown more spark, more life, I guess more kick in his step than someone like Trey Sermon last year. I do think that Shanahan, who always seems to have this card up his sleeve, might go back to old faithful Tevin Coleman. Tevin Coleman this year was someone that kind of came out of nowhere when he signed prior to the Panthers game, and and Tevin Coleman shined. He had, what, two touchdowns in that game? You're like, holy crap, Tevin Coleman's back. Now against the Falcons was a non-factor. Then that made San Francisco say, look, let's go get Christian McCaffrey. So I think that in... I think San Francisco is right now thinking Mitchell may miss two, three weeks. And if that's the case, I do think they might find themselves in the middle of a playoff run or a playoff hunt. They would rather hedge their bets towards the veteran presence. So I would not be surprised if on Sunday against the Dolphins, it's Christian McCaffrey, it's Jordan Mason, and then it's Tevin Coleman. And I can even be honest with you, I, I, I might even say Tevin Coleman might be the number two back. Because a veteran guy, Shanahan, likes people he can rely on. And despite Jordan Mason, who again, I would pick to be the RB2, I do think that Tevin Coleman might be more versatile than Jordan Mason in the passing game, uh, pass blocking, and also just knowing the system more so. But at this point in the year, enough can't be said for what fresh legs can do to an offense. Now, Tevin Coleman may have some fresh legs, but Jordan Mason's legs are even fresher. <laughs> and so when you have someone like Jordan Mason, it's kind of this, this brute force. There's someone that isn't afraid of contact, whose body can withstand that contact. That's where I would lean towards uh, for Kyle Shanahan going forward. And before we get into the Saints game, you know, the nitty-gritty, the the play-by-play, how Jimmy did, how the defense played, I do want to bring up this one fact, and it kind of came to light uh, this this uh, Sunday when Raheem Mostert, there was an article out with him and Jeff Wilson Jr. discussing their time in San Francisco and how they're looking forward to this Dolphins game on Sunday against the Niners, and Raheem Mostert hinted towards San Francisco maybe trying to rush some of their injured players back. And I do fear that, and I'll be honest here, I do think Raheem Mostert's telling the truth. Because we've kind of heard rumors of that. There's been discussion of why San Francisco's players don't just get hurt once, they have a higher chance of re-injury. We've seen it plenty of times especially running backs. So I do think Raheem Mostert's telling the truth. And Kyle Shanahan told us in 2021 when Mostert got hurt on the first play of the game against Detroit, they thought he can be back in eight weeks. Well, Mostert then said, no, I need season-ending surgery to protect my career. Okay, that's fine. No problem with it. 2021's in the past. We move on, right? It didn't cost us the season. But I do wonder if maybe, or, or, or it seems like that when the team gets banged up, when they're in this stretch of the playoffs, I do wonder if Shanahan and the, the coaching staff and the training staff say, we need our stars healthy and back on the field. We need you to fight through this. 
And sometimes players just can't do that. And so I do wonder, and I hope for Elijah Mitchell's sake, they are playing it careful with him. I'm not saying they're being negligent. I'm just saying that I do hope that Mitchell can kind of stand up for himself or Kyle Shanahan and this training staff have learned from the past and decide to play it safe with him and say, look, if you miss three games, it's not going to kill us, right? We have or hopefully have Christian McCaffrey healthy if that knee irritation does eventually go away, but also we have someone like Ty Davis Price and Jordan Mason and Tevin Coleman who can hold down the fort while you are gone. And when you do return, you're fully healthy and you're you are ready to go for this last stretch of the season. Like losing against the Dolphins isn't the end of the world. Is it a test? Is it a big game for pride? Yes, but it's not the end of the world especially if it costs you Elijah Mitchell for the whole season rather than two, three, four weeks. So I do think it's McCaffrey, Mason, Tevin Coleman with Ty Davis Price having an outside chance to become uh, active on the game day roster, which we'll see. It could happen, but the Mitchell injury does kind of concern me. And also the McCaffrey knee irritation. We know this team likes to run the football. And if those two guys aren't healthy fans are going to riot because that is that was the biggest knock on McCaffrey acquiring him. And if he isn't healthy despite the upside, fans are going to say, again, really, this guy's worth four, four, you know, four draft picks, really. And he is, but again, it always seems to come back to those two words, if healthy, for San Francisco. But let's dive into this Saints game because, look, I turned 26 today. November 28th, 1996 was my birthday. I was born on Thanksgiving. And while Thanksgiving was a great celebration, the Giants lost. It was awesome. The Cowboys won, which whatever. But that being said, after the big feast we had on Thanksgiving, hope you had a great one, by the way. It's always a great day to be with family and have a good time. But it's my birthday today. And throughout this entire game, selfishly, I said, I swear to God, if San Francisco loses... And gives me a crappy birthday. <laughs> but, but no, but honestly, it, it was a nice way to kind of, you know, tip the tip the birthday hat off and say, look, they got to win, got the win near my birthday, celebrate it the right way. That, that'll make me happy as I have to go to work tonight, right? <laughs> and spend my day in a nice cold radio studio for about six, seven hours. <laughs> so it was a nice way to kind of start the birthday celebration for myself. But San Francisco won 13-0. They're now 7-4 on the season. They're also third place in the NFC Conference. Now, first place cemented themselves as the first place team in the NFC West with a win against the Saints and a Seattle loss against the Raiders in Seattle, mind you. So, I think, I think this game, while it was ugly, it wasn't pretty, I do think that the defense, well, is going to be talked about, has been talked about all year. This is a game where I think the defense now shines. Because it feels like we all know the defense has been good. We all kind of feel like, okay, like, you know, we know it's number one unit in football. We get it. But they haven't really had that game where they've, like, been the main cause that we've won. And what I mean by that is, when the national media focus their, focuses their attention on San Francisco, they lost that primetime game against Denver. 
but Jimmy G's poor play took the spotlight. When they beat the Chargers, they really didn't get the attention they deserved for how good they were in that game, shutting out Herbert in the second half. Now, they got some attention against the Cardinals, but then that attention turned into Jimmy G had four touchdowns. And I'm guilty of that, and I think many other fans are as well, but I think because we live in this small kind of Niner community where maybe it's not small, but we know they're good. So we don't feel the need to discuss them very often. And when Garoppolo has a great game, it's like, well, we haven't seen that very often, so let's talk about that. But this Sunday felt like this was the game the national media finally, finally is giving them credit. Because maybe it's just me. The last time it felt like the national media focused on outside of that Cardinals game, which again turned into Jimmy G had four touchdowns, it was the Chiefs game. And they were banged up, they were hurt. Many players played with limps and bruises and injuries, and they got you know 40 points put up on them. And that was like, well, they're not real. And it's like, no, like <laughs> that's an unfair assessment. And since then, this unit has gotten even better despite not even being as healthy as they were prior to that game. Like, Eric Armstead's not playing. Javon Kinlaw's not playing. Mosley's now out for the season. Like, the Niners right now are arguably the healthiest they've been defensively all season, and they will likely get back Kinlaw and Armstead soon. Again, we've heard that for months, but it just seems like they're being safe with those two guys. It's good for them. I would not be surprised if Armstead is questionable this Sunday. Maybe he doesn't play, but I do think he does play against the Buccaneers, which is a great game to come back on. They don't have Fournette currently. That might be the best time for him to come back against Tom Brady, but I digress. Sticking with the Saints game, this game does feel like this was kind of the statement plant your flag game for the defense. And I do think that despite the offensive unit getting much of the attention recently, my mind just thought of it last night was like, there's a reason Shanahan always wants to defer the football. And there's a reason why Fred Warner always picks tails. You know, tails never fails, right? And that's kind of the way the defense likes to play, where if they can go out there, they want to set the tone. They want to be the unit that makes the first statement, that punches the opposing team in the mouth first. And they did that. On the first drive of the game, they set that tone. And this is a defense that hadn't really been getting turnovers and takeaways earlier in the year. Like, like the the pick six against the Rams, who fungus pick six. Like that was kind of the last big turnover I can think of that was like sparked something or or put a game away. Now, the Charger one was the first pick they had in a long time, but this is their third game in a row. They've gotten turnovers. They got one against the Chargers. They had a pick against the Cardinals. Now they had two takeaways, two turnovers forced in this game against the Saints, and they came at two pivotal moments. Again, enough cannot be said about what it means to a team to punch the other team in the mouth first. And forcing Alvin Kamara to fumble, Fred Warner, a huge forced fumble on the first drive of the game, that set the tone of, okay, look, this Niners defense is here to attack, they're here to swarm, and they're also here to kind of end another NFC opponent's season. 
Cardinal season's over with. It's done. Cliff Kingsbury's likely getting fired. Now, the Saints a little different. Better in team, better in presence. Guys are banged up. We know this. They're likely not going to fire Dennis Allen, right? Or, or cut Andy Dalton next year. But this is a team now that San Francisco smelt blood early. It's like a pack of lions, right? When, when they smell blood, it's get the pride going, we're ready to go. Get the pride out, we're going to start, we're, we're going on the hunt. And that's how this defense is, where they smell a team reeling like the Saints of, they're coming in here desperate, they're on their last leg, let's put them out of their misery. And that's how the defense played all game long. And I like to use the water analogy. It was like, well, not to be gruesome or, or torturous, it was kind of like San Francisco was waterboarding the Saints' D or offense. Like, every chance they thought they had a, you know, an, an opportunity to breathe, it was pouring water over their face and forcing them to suffocate and drown because every big play they almost made was a penalty or a drop because the opposing defense was getting pressure on the quarterback or... They were great in coverage. Now, there were some opportunities they missed big time, but for a team like the Saints who came in reeling, kind of not scoring, not putting up points, while I didn't think they'd win 13-0, I thought it'd be 30-20, I thought San Francisco's offense would play a little better, I do think that the defense came in, and Drake Greenlaw said it, that they right now have pride in that shutout streak. Well, this is their fourth straight second-half shutout dating back to, what is that? The Rams, the Chargers, the Cardinals, and now this game? They haven't allowed a point in six straight quarters dating back to the second quarter in Mexico City against the Cardinals. And listen to this. The last four times the Saints have been shut out, the last four times, 1997 against the Niners, 1998 against the Niners, 2002 against, you guessed it, the Niners, and this past Sunday, once again, against the San Francisco 49ers. And again, this game just felt like it was an opponent that San Francisco's defense saw could be attacked on all fronts, didn't have the offensive firepower, and they knew they could also end their season. They smelt that blood. It's like finding Nemo. Soon as Bruce, he's all nice, he's all chirpy, you know, how's it going, Dory? How's it going, Nemo? And as soon as he smells that blood, those eyes turn black, and he's on the attack. That's what it was like on Sunday for San Francisco. They smelt blood, the eyes turned black, and they said, we're going to go out there and we're going to attack and put our opponent out of its misery and put the kill shot on the offense. We know they cannot beat us. And even then, the Saints, I believe, had three drives that started somewhere in between, like, like inside San Francisco's 40-yard line. They got zero points out of that. Now, one of those plays was a nice challenge by Kyle Shanahan, and then a accepted penalty to push them out of field goal range. They tried. They failed. But, like, my mind goes to those last couple drives for the Saints where the last two drives for them, they started on their own 12-yard line, marched all the way down the field against San Francisco, 
They had the ball on the six-yard line. Six-yard line. And what happens? Hufunga comes in, knocks the ball out of Kamara's hands, and guess what? Fumble, get the ball back. Ball pops into the ball pops into the end zone. Everyone's like, someone get the ball, someone get the ball. <laughs> and they go and they recover it. That was kind of the, you know, they thought, you know, F round and find out you're not gonna score against us. You might get close, but we're gonna again put the nail in that coffin. But even then, this next drive they had, because San Francisco's offense couldn't do jack squat in this game. And I get it. The next drive, they're on their own one-yard line. It's a run, it's a run, it's a pass. Like, there's not much you can do there. It's more of just get some room, punt it away, push them further down the field, and make the game even harder for them to hopefully come back, which they didn't. But that next drive, they had three minutes, roughly three minutes left in the game, four minutes left in the game, I believe. And, uh, sorry, nine minutes left in the game. I cannot read. Um, Nine minutes left in the game. And Saints ran nine plays, went 28 yards, because, again, they had the ball on San Francisco's 39-yard line to start the drive. Two straight drives where they got the ball all the way inside San Francisco's six-yard line. In fact, on that second drive, the Saints' last drive of the game to put up points, where there were still nine minutes left, six minutes left, once the drive ended, they had the ball with four chances on San Francisco's four-yard line. Incomplete to Landry, incomplete to Ingram, incomplete to Hill, and of course Nick Bosa putting the final nail in the coffin with a sack of Andy Dalton. This defense, again, their eyes turned black at every moment when they smelt blood. When they were on the attack, when they knew that the offense, they may not admit it, but the offense could not score points. The Saints defense is relatively good. They're not great, but they're they're having a great game against the Niners offensive line. My goodness. But this defense knew it had to make the play. And I do think that we've seen this time and time again against the Rams in week four, against the Chargers a couple weeks ago. They knew that the defense, not the offense, was going to have to make the play that sealed the game. And I can think of three times and two times alone in this game where they did that. It was the fumble on Kamara, the sack by Bosa, the pick against the Chargers, and the pick pick six against the Rams. Four games. That's more than half of San Francisco's wins— This defense has put the nail in the coffin of that game, of their opponent. You know the San Francisco defense this year has has allowed or has not allowed their opponent to score in 11 of 22 quarters? That's crazy. In 11 of 22 quarters. They played 11 games, you got four quarters, that's second halves, right? In 11... Of the 22 second half quarters they played, their opponents have scored zero points. Zero. I mean, how... I, it's like, what? Like, Jameko Ryan's... We're going to lose you and it's going to suck, but this defense right now is on a historic, historic pace. I mean, I'm talking number one defense in the last three, four, five years. 
arguably better than the 2019 defense. Like, right now, this, this Niners defense ranks first in points allowed per game, first in yards allowed per game, first in rushing yards allowed per game, first in yards per rush, <laughs> first in passing touchdowns allowed. And I'm sure there's many more categories, those just being the main ones. This Niners defense, while I do think that if you asked the coaching staff, the head coach, the quarterback, the offensive line, they know their identity is the defense. And it has been. And not many teams can say that with a unit that does it this consistently. Like, take the Broncos, for example. There have been times this year that the Niners' defense could have easily done what Mike Purcell did to Russell Wilson this past Sunday. The Broncos are losing. Purcell gets frustrated saying, we've been picking you up the entire season. Do your job. Whether it's a fumble by the running backs or Jimmy G or drops by the receiver, it doesn't matter. This defense has had the opportunity to do that week by week, almost the entirety of the season at certain points. Now, when you're winning, that stuff doesn't happen as often. But my point more so is that the defense has, they've had the opportunity to be that frustrated at times, to know they're the reason that in over half their games this year, they're winning games. To know that even the Broncos game, even the Bears game, that for the majority of that time, the offense has let them down in those games. And my mind just goes back to the leadership on this team, where it's never, uh, this is your fault. And that starts from the top with John Lynch, and it permeates all the way through to the last guy on the roster. Like, for example, take Fred Warner in the the you know, locker room post-game speech this past week. Ayuk's was great, but what did Fred Warner say? It said, you know, the defense was great, the offense did their job. This team knows that it's never about the defense is so great. And again, they've been phenomenal all year. And I do think this is why they don't get the credit sometimes, because they don't have one player on this team that says, yep, that was me, I did that, our unit's great, they don't have a Jalen Ramsey bringing the attention to himself or his unit. San Francisco puts their head down, does their job, day in, day out, week in, week out, and doesn't, and still doesn't, and might finally be getting the respect they deserve. Like, Mooney Ward, arguably the best free agent signing, at least on defense, He's the number one ranked defensive back in run stopping. He's missed zero tackles this year in run defense. And he has a 3.3% stop rate. That's the best in football. San Francisco, take Tayshawn Gibson, a guy off the street. He ranks fifth in run defense. There's a reason they can't bench him. And that's someone who I said... You need to put Jimmy Ward back at the safety position because he can't play nickel. Even he's tightened things up. He's learned or relearned, readapted to playing nickel, which he hasn't played since, what, 2017? 
And that's what I mean. It's they don't have this one player that's like me, me, me. It's no, it's us, us, us. And the offense is the same way. Jimmy G, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk. It's the offensive line was good, which they weren't great against the Saints, but you get my point. They were good. The running backs were great today. The blocking was great. My my weapons, my offensive weapons were good for me this Sunday. They did the job. We did the job. It's not about us. And I do think that this world, the media, they give attention to the me, me, me. But you know who wins games? The us, us, us. And what is San Francisco doing? They're winning games, four games in a row, and they have the second best offense they're going to face all season in the Miami Dolphins coming into town. Now, if you ask me, well, Sterling, what's the one area that concerns you about this Niners defense? And I'll say, well, there isn't many. (laughs) But to be honest with you, I do think the one area they've struggled is third and short. Many people have said it on Twitter, and I can agree, that if you can get this Niners team on third and short, uh, you're likely going to convert that first down. Because... Right now, San Francisco does not have the personnel in or on the interior defensive line to stop a running back like Jeff Wilson Jr., like Raheem Mostert, whoever's playing for the freaking Dolphins on Sunday, or a team like the Buccaneers who have Rashad White having a great season so far, or even if Fournette's healthy, he's a big-bodied guy. And I talked about it when we previewed the Saints game, that I did not fear Alvin Kamara on the ground. I knew the Saints were not trying to establish the run. And every time San Francisco has lost a game this year because the defense played poorly, the Chiefs, the Falcons, they established the run early in between the tackles. And, well, I'll I'll ask you this. Who are the two pieces this team is missing that might be the biggest pieces they're missing. One, Eric Armstead, and number two, Javon Kinlaw. If, even if one of those guys, primarily you hope it's Eric Armstead because of the history he's had at being a great run defender. If you can get him back, whether it's this week against the Saints, or Dolphins, excuse me, or against the Bucks in a few weeks, this defense is going to get better in the one area, at least this season, They've struggled with consistently. You get back Eric Armstead, someone that like, and I think right now, and I know it's so much defensive talk, but right now Nick Bosa has kind of assumed the Eric Armstead role, not where he plays on the line, but I do think Nick Bosa is getting double teamed, getting held. He's kind of the premier defensive player on the field, which he is even with Armstead on the line, but Armstead, when he's healthy, takes pressure off of Nick Bosa, Ebukam, to get to the quarterback. And it's impressive that Nick Bosa still has 11 and a half sacks, ranks third in football, is on pace for 51 quarterback hits this year, which is by far the tops in the league. He currently leads the NFL in quarterback hits, I think 30, something like that. Like, Nick Bosa's having a great year, but... Right now, he's being double-teamed at a highest rate in football. He's being held at a highest rate in football. Like, Nick Bosa, 
has kind of assumed the Eric Armstead take attention off the other guy's role. So Ebukam and Menehue and Ridgeway and Givens and Drake Jackson can get to the quarterback. Well, once Armstead comes back, not only is he going to help the defense and run defense in short yardage plays, he's also going to free up Nick Bosa and Ebukam, be able to take on double teams, free up. Again, the more you can get Nick Bosa one-on-one, the better this defense is going to be. Like, there is... Armstead's impact, even Kinlaw's impact, is much, it goes much further than just, well, he's better at run defense. It's, no, he can help so many other things happen. Because if Armstead takes up two defenders, Kinlaw takes up two defenders, then Bosa's free, Ebukam gets free, that makes the quarterback get pressured, he makes a bad play, that gives you turnovers, and it also makes him have to make a bad throw, or it helps the secondary, which I think personnel-wise, does sometimes struggle. Like, it felt like in this game, Lenore was getting chewed alive. He had some good defensive plays, but it did feel like that the that the Lenore that we saw against the Cardinals was not the same guy we saw against the Saints, and I don't know why. I haven't watched film on it, but it just felt like that every single play it was a penalty, or whenever we saw his name, not every single play, but whenever we saw his name come up, it was a penalty, he was getting burnt, or it was a near catch that should have been caught but was dropped. So having some guys like that that might be inexperienced, or having guys like Hufanga who like to make big plays, hard hits, it allows them to not have to play in the box as much. It can also give to make Orion's the ability to blitz more. Like there's so many versatile things that will increase once Armstead and Kinlock come back. And it might not be this week. But all I'm saying is, is that this defense, despite being number one in football in the majority of categories, might get better. Like, knock on wood, everyone's healthy, but they might get better. And I do think that right there, to me, shows, or at least it it kind of gives me hope that this defense hasn't played their best football yet, despite this likely being their best game of the season. Like, the offense against the Cardinals last week, that was their best game of the season. I think this week against the Saints, that was their best game. Because multiple times, their backs were against the wall, and they somehow fought the way out. Like, my mind goes to Johnny Cueto when he was on the Reds, and they're fighting the Cardinals on the field, and he's his back's against the backstop. He puts his cleats up and is kicking away, and kicking and kicking and kicking. That's kind of what San Francisco's defense was like. It was that we're never going to stop attacking. Even when our back's against the wall and it looks like they're about to score, the Saints are about to score a touchdown, we're going to keep fighting and clawing to push them back to stop them. And that's what it was like. But let's move to the offense. The defense got what? How long was that? 20, 30 minutes of talk? 40 minutes of conversation? (laughs) Let's move to the offense because... While there wasn't much to really take away from this game, outside of, again, kind of the same... kind of the same old thing we've seen in the past, where the offense isn't hitting many big plays, while I do think that... Like, third downs, they weren't great. 5 for 13, 38%. They were averaging 55% with Christian McCaffrey coming into this game. They were 1-3 in the red zone. Like, Jimmy missed two... Two should have been touchdowns in this game. 
The first one was he had Brandon Ayuk on the right side behind George Kittle. It looked like that that was his target, and he underthrew him. The ball gets tipped, and you're like, Jimmy, you got to float it up higher. Then <laughs> the other one, he throws to Jennings on the right side, and he, gets, he catches the football, but McCaffrey's wide open to his left, and I have no idea what the play call was or the progression, but you're just like, oh, like, Jimmy, <laughs> like, Jennings is open. Yes, you can make that throw, but McCaffrey is wide open. That's an easy touchdown. And then his only touchdown of the game, or the only touchdown of the game, it <laughs> kind of was lucky while I do think that was a good throw by Jimmy Garoppolo, an even better defense by Tyron Matthew, an even better catch by Jawan Jennings. It just felt like that. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And in this game against the Saints, luck happened to be on San Francisco's side. But I'll just say this, that while the offense did struggle, the offensive line was atrocious outside of maybe Jake Brendel and a really good Trent Williams game. McGlinchey wasn't great. Aaron Banks had his worst game of the season, despite, I believe, Garoppolo not being sacked in this game. Like, there were... It felt like every play, Jimmy G was being pressured. It felt like every single play, he was escaping the pocket or he was taking a hit. Like, Jimmy G, at one point in this game, it looked like he had hurt his torn ACL knee again. And it wasn't because the offensive line was bad, but I just, and I think you would agree, even if it's Mahomes or Josh Allen or Tua Tagovailoa, you never want your quarterback to take hits. Because you don't know what can happen. Any play, and especially with Jimmy G, which the reason why they replaced him outside of some play, or poor play, was because he can't stay healthy. And we already lost a quarterback this year due to injury. Getting hit on a running play. Jimmy G, in this game, which he would attest was a dirty play by the opposing defender of the Saints... You just got to protect the quarterback. Every offensive lineman in football will tell you, if that quarterback is standing up straight by the end of that play, I did my job. We did our job right. And I do think that the offensive line this year in pass protection has been a lot better than I think many fans think it has been, despite the constant, McGlinch is a bad player. Like, that's like, while it's sometimes accurate, I do think that in pass protection that the offensive line has actually been pretty good this year. But what I was going to say was that despite how maybe inconsistent the, the offense has been, I do think that, or how mixed of a bag Jimmy G's performance was, I do think that I would much rather be, you know, have a really good defense in an offense with potential with some luck rather than just being good. Because, like, my mind goes back to the Seattle teams, where Seattle and San Francisco were basically on par with each other. And, yeah, there were some mistakes in those games. I haven't watched, you know, the Harbaugh era games in a long time, but I can always, like, my, my infant mind, <laughs> my adolescent mind always thinks of, man, every single bounce and ball drops and, and this goes Seattle's way. In the 90s, it was the Dallas Cowboys. That's a Dallas Cowboy bounce. And so, it just feels like, or even the Patriots against the Falcons. You know, every single play in that second half went New England's way. 
And you're just like, what is happening? <laughs> like, we're better than them. How are they beating us? And it felt like that the luck happened to be on their side. Now, luck is kind of an unquantifiable thing. It just kind of happens to you, right? But for San Francisco's sake, it does feel like that on Sunday against the Saints, they had this unquantifiable luck. And I think that, despite doing some really good things offensively, it was an overall mixed bag of, he didn't run the ball very well. Jimmy was okay. He made some really nice throws and made some kind of like, what the heck are you doing? Like, you threw that one pick that wasn't a pick, and it, yes, it was a penalty, so whatever got called back, but you're like, oh, God, Jimmy, like, what are you doing? Despite some of those things, despite me thinking that Jimmy G was better than the stats may say, or fans might have, or, or, or the box score might say, and the offensive line not playing well, and San Francisco never really establishing the running game, I do think that sometimes you just have to chalk it up to that's football, we had some luck, we got the win. And again, the Saints defense, they came in against the Niners with the third or with the most sacks since I think week three, week four of the NFL season. They they were one of the best teams in the red zone and on third down. We knew where San Francisco was going to have to be successful in this game. And there wasn't many times in this game, only 30, what, 33% of the time in this game, they were good on third down, 38%, excuse me. On third down, they were good. Like, they were not playing up to par with what they showed in Arizona. But all I can say is, thank God for Jawan Jennings. Because I had mentioned it before that Jawan Jennings has kind of assumed the Kendrick Bourne role. Maybe he doesn't dance as much. Maybe he's not, you know, doing all the, the, the Kendrick Bourne style of stuff that we, that we want to see or that attracted fans to him. But I do think he is the closest thing energy-wise, clutch-wise. Like, when I was hosting last night on 95.7 The Game, we were discussing the impact he had. And on that final drive of the first half where they scored that touchdown pass, three catches, two first downs, one of the first downs was on third and ten, and obviously caught that big touchdown pass. Like, Juwan Jennings has been... I don't want to say found money, but when you're a seventh-round pick from Tennessee, and you were almost kicked off the football team because of behavioral issues, and you have kind of become the de facto number three in the offense. On most weeks, you are a dog in the run defending category, and it seems like, like, put it this way, it just feels like that every time you need someone to show up that, you know, you can circle and say, you know, which maybe underrated player is going to have a big game. My mind somehow always trickles towards Juwan Jennings. Now, he isn't a star. He ain't Debo. He ain't Ayuk. He ain't McCaffrey and Kittle. But he is someone that gets overlooked because of what he does isn't always, you can't always put it in the box score. He may have one catch. He may have no catch. But he'll have five great blocks downfield, opening up space for guys like Debo and Ayuk and Chris McCaffrey and Mitchell and Jordan Mason, right? But it just feels like last year we kind of saw his ascension towards that number three player where my mind always takes me back to that Rams game, right? We're down at halftime. How do you, we need a spark. What do you do? It's do or die. Playoffs or you're out. When, when in, you're out. What happens? Debo Samuel throws a touchdown pass to Jawan Jennings. 
Later in the later close to overtime, what do they do? Juwan Jennings touchdown. He's he he's he's clutch. He has that clutch gene in him where the majority of his catches come for first downs or or are for first downs on third down. His a lot of his bigger games come when things get tight late in games, where when teams are focusing on Debo and Ayuk and Kittle and McCaffrey, sometimes the guy they choose to leave open is Jawan Jennings, and more often than not, he catches the football. Now, he had a dropping problem earlier this year. That seems to be out the window. Like, it does seem like, and Jimmy Garoppolo kind of touched on this in his post-game press conference, he said that Jawan's a big man, and that's something that was supposed to be Jalen Hurd. He's a big guy who can get open in space and can also kind of create separation. And Juwan Jennings in this game, like, he made Chris Harris look foolish. And Chris Harris, in my lifetime, is one of the best nickel cornerbacks in the last decade. He was great in Denver for a long time. And in New Orleans, a team that does have a defensive identity, has been good this year. He made him look foolish. He ran him over on run defense early in the that last drive of the game, or last drive of the first half, then irritates Harris so much that Harris pushes him out of bounds after he's already out of bounds or, or gets a late hit on him. And then Juwan in this post-game press conference says like, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. You know, it's a little too serious. Like you could tell that there was gratitude in Juwan that he had made a defensive player that angry, that frustrated at him by just overpowering him and being this kind of, you know, D-A-W-G, a dog where it, it's, that's kind of the only way to describe him because he's he's a nice, quiet guy, but also you can tell that when those lights turn on, he's going to attack you. He's going to hit you hard. He's going to make sure that you are blocked, that, that, that you feel punishment from an offensive player, which usually isn't the case. Usually it's defensive guys dishing it out. But Jawan... He wants to give it to a defensive player. He wants to dish it out. And on Sunday against the Saints, he did it. And he kind of was the defining factor in the win, right? The biggest takeaway, and on our Instagram, we do every win gets a victory Monday, players of the game, players of the week. And he was offensively one of two of them. It was Trent Williams and Jawan Jennings because he was so clutch when this team needed it most. Had, had they not scored a touchdown there and it just was you know, 10 or, or or 13 or 9 points, whatever the score could have been, right? If it was 9 to nothing, the Saints would have been in this game till that final drive. They wouldn't have needed to go for it on fourth down. Like, that's how close this game was. The Saints, had Jawan Jennings not caught that touchdown, could have easily won this football game with field goals. Like, that's how big that catch was. Now, obviously, defense came up big when it mattered, but my point more so is that Jawan Jennings on offense was kind of the the hero. He played hero ball offensively. And, again, luck comes into it. The Saints had plenty of their big plays called back, but a win's a win, right? I was told long ago, stats are for losers. A W is a W, and I will leave you with this. Jimmy Garoppolo... In 59 starts, in his first 59 starts as a Niners starting quarterback, 
he has the same record as Steve Young and a better record than Joe Montana. Now, I'm not saying anything by that. Jimmy Garoppolo is not in the same categories, either one of those guys, by any means. But there's something about Jimmy G. Whether it's the defense being great that day, him having a good day personally, there's just... You can't teach winners. And that's something he has. That being said, I'm feeling gracious. It's my birthday. So... Because it's my birthday, I want to let you know of our deal with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is giving us a promo code 49ERSACCESS, 49ERSACCESS, and you can save yourself $20 off your first purchase at SeatGeek.com to the Dolphins game, the Buccaneers game. If you want to fly your little tiny butt to Seattle on Thursday Night Football, you can still use that promo code and save yourself some money while watching your Niners play in person and also supporting the podcast, the Instagram, the Twitter, and the show as a whole. You can also use our link for fanatics.com. Use that link and you can get yourself a little discount on Niners gear. It's the holidays. They got big giveaways currently at fanatics.com. And in the meantime, you can also support the show and podcast by using those links down in the description. You follow us on social media at 49ers.access, 49ers underscore access. That's Twitter. That's Instagram. You follow us there. You can see all of our content, all of our posts hyping up this team, our Victory Monday star players of the week. Who are they? To see those, again, follow us on social media. And also, don't forget to like, share, subscribe. My name is Sterling Bennett. This has been the 49er Access Podcast. And until next time, stay faithful. Rocking around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party hop. Mistletoe home where you can see every couple tries to.